We continue in Genesis today uh, with a, a new story or a new account um, as, as mentioned in what you see. These, these are the generations. So it's Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Throughout the book of Genesis, we see these different divisions. This is the account. These are the generations. This is, this is kind of who we're focusing on. It's interesting with, um, you'd expect these are the generations of the account of Abraham, but in chapter 11, it was the generations of Terah, his dad. Now, uh, the generations of Isaac tend to focus not on Isaac, but on Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. And then once we get around to the, these are the generations, or this is the, the account of the story of God's working in the lives of Jacob, it focus really is more on Joseph. It's an interesting, this chapter divisions that we see in these type of things. But we're in Genesis 25, we'll read verses 19 to 26, uh, see what the Lord has for us in this. Genesis 9, 25, excuse me, 19 to 26. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Keith uh, preached on that for us a few weeks ago in chapter 24. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his, repair, his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived the children struggled together within her, and she says, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. First came out red all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his, his name was called Jacob, foreshadowing. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. You Throughout this is a setting, a, a point that bears, I think, repeating for us, this is the first aspect of this, the, the setting of this, is that the Lord tests his people. I know that I've mentioned this before. It bears repeating because it appears repeatedly in the Bible, and it's important for us to recognize the Lord brings situations into our lives to reveal our sin and to reveal our need. And by doing this, he draws our attention back to him, jolting us back into paying attention. We get lulled and he rocks the boat so we look up and stop being lulled into these things. And these are these tests of different difficulties. So has your week been good? Good job? Good health? Good relationships? Well, I'm happy for you. Now, how have you responded to those things? Have you responded to the, the good things of life? What has come out of your heart because tests aren't just in the difficulties. We can be tested with success or health or peace. So what has come out of your heart? Has it been gratitude for God's blessings that you don't deserve? Or has it been pride because you think you deserve all that you have received? Well, of course I'm healthy. Haven't you seen what I've done? Of course, of course my job's going good. I've earned that. What, what, have, what do you have that you have not received? We're told to ask. Uh, has your week been bad? Bad job, bad health. I think all of us have been sick over the last month, some more than others. Bad relationships, I hear you. How have you responded to those things? What, is, what has come out of your heart in response to those difficulties? Uh, has there been submission to the Lord and trust in his plan? Peace because he's in control? That all sounds really nice. Or has it been grumbling and complaining about how miserable you are, how unfair it is. If you're feeling sick, do you find yourself throwing yourself at your daughter's door and telling them that you died? That's what I did when I was sick. Just waited there for them to open the door and I collapsed into the room just so I could lay there and tell them that I was dead. So maybe not the best response. Perhaps bad day, bad week, bad month, perhaps... Uh, Instead of grumbling or complaining, perhaps we despair as if God is only ever against us, very short-sighted. 
How do we respond to these type of difficulties? These blessings or burdens, all of it, the good and the bad, they are tests or trials to draw your attention to God, especially as your sin and your need are revealed. Keith discussed in training hour last, last month or earlier this year that these things are part of our Heavenly Father's discipline training. His discipline training of us as his dearly loved children. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is accidental. So what are these things drawing out of you? In our text this morning, we see Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren for the first 20 years of their marriage as part of the Lord's plan or according to his will. This is interesting because if you remember the story, like you see God at work so clearly in bringing Rebecca to Isaac, having set her apart for him and the, the prayer of the servant going to find her and bringing her to him. It's like, ah, yes, this is the fulfillment of God's plan. Like this is the blessing of the Lord providing just such a wonderful wife for Isaac. And then you see him enter, them entering into the same test that Abraham and Sarah had faced. This is like, why, if, if there needs to be this promised seed, why does there just keep being barren women like when it would come through birth this is a test of the lord it's for them to ask that very question to draw their attention up to the lord and that barrenness like that happened before will happen again we discussed that i think around christmas time just unlikely births and children of promise really all of which is foreshadowing us to the most unlikely of births of our savior jesus but time and time again in the Bible, we see that God is perfectly comfortable with making his people uncomfortable so that he can display his power in them. And so his best case scenario for the glory of God for Rebecca to be barren for these 20 years. Doesn't feel best case scenario for Rebecca. Doesn't feel best case scenario for Isaac. But it was best case scenario for God to display his power. And to continue to show his people, it's like this will proceed according to, you know, my plan, my will, my power. You don't accomplish these things on your own. So what did the test of Rebecca's barrenness draw out of Isaac? Thankfully, it didn't draw out. I've got this servant named Hagar. Didn't draw that out. Maybe in one instance he learned from the sins of his father. Well, all that we know, and we honestly, we don't know a whole lot about Isaac. It's interesting how little really is said about him. But what it drew, what this trial, what this test, this confusion and this difficulty drew out of Isaac was prayer. That's, the, that's what the text tells us happens in response to this. It doesn't tell us how faithfully Isaac prayed or for how long. I mean, did, he, uh, did they kind of try to figure out their own thing for 20 years? And then finally he's like, you know what? Maybe I should pray about this. We just, it's almost how the text seems to lay it out, just the very suddenness of it. We don't know. Maybe he did only pray once, but once or a thousand times, one, one day or 10 years, 20 years, he prayed and that was enough. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And the text next takes an interesting and very uncomfortable turn, but a different type of uncomfortableness, discomfort. When Rebecca conceives, she conceives twins. And I had my share of sibling conflict and rivalry growing up with two older sisters, but this one takes the cake. These twins we learn they are sons. They begin fighting with each other in Rebecca's womb. I've heard stories from Leanne about difficulties of pregnancy and, and being kicked in the spine and those type of things. But I mean, you'd have to talk to Samiko or, or Elaine. You'd have to talk to Sherry to find out like were there like just straight up battles happening. I don't know. They haven't even seen daylight yet, but it's like one of them already has a black eye from a fist fight. I don't know how you do that in the womb. Poor Rebecca is tortured by this, but she's not in anguish over whether her children will get along. She is physically being attacked as the boys inside her push and fight. And the question that she asks in verse 22, the ESV has, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? It sounds very um, organized. It's not an organized question. Really, uh, from my reading, it sounds like in the Hebrew, this, her words, her questions don't even really express a complete thought. 
it's kind of more like, what? Why? Ow, huh? Like, why don't I even ask for this? <laughs> like, if, am I even going to live through this? Are they going to live through this? Like, it's like, it, some authors were like, it's, it's almost in real time as it's trying to record the questions, right? Just kind of like trying to think and then another jab of pain in these things. So she's in agony. She's confused. But what does this test draw out of her? Prayer. Once again, she inquires of the Lord. Now, praise God that he provides access to himself for his people through prayer. We see that for Isaac. We see that for Rebecca. And interestingly, this is only the second story in all of Genesis that discusses prayer directly. This is, it's almost like this is the beginning of God's people approaching him prayerfully in those type of things. Because a lot of other people, just even in their interaction with God, it hasn't used the, the wording, the, the, it hasn't spoken of prayer like it now is speaking of prayer and will continue to speak of prayer. So as we read the Bible, starting in Genesis, working through, we begin slowly to learn that God's people pray. And when God's people pray, the Lord answers his people. That's the second thing that we see this. The Lord answers his people in prayer. Now, there are many types of prayer. There are prayers of amazement or adoration. There are prayers of gratitude, prayers of confession, prayers of supplication or asking, prayers of intercession, asking specifically for someone else, many types of prayer. But here in this text, I think we see two very specific types of prayer that I think it's trying to draw our attention to. Uh, first, Isaac's prayer is a prayer for action, where he says, God, please do this. And the, the wording that's used, if you were to look this up or kind of word search through this, it's the same type of prayer that Pharaoh has, asks Moses to pray to stop the plagues that have come. Like there's a desperate situation. God, please act in this. And that's a specific type of prayer, prayer for action, not action on our part, not an action on somebody else's part, an action on God's part. God, please do this thing. And in his case, Isaac prays specifically about the barrenness of his wife, asking the Lord to allow her to conceive. And what happens? He says, yes, the Lord answers or the Lord grants the prayer that Isaac prayed, and Rebecca, his wife, finally conceives. So don't be afraid to pray action prayers. Like pray and ask the Lord to do things for you and for others. Lord, please provide this. Lord, please heal here. Please save this person. Please reconcile this relationship. Please help in this need. Please deliver me from this, this sin, and so on. So, brothers and sisters, do you have a, an action prayer? Something that you're longing for God to do that's on your heart? If, if so, if you're taking notes or not, uh, write it down now. And pray that to the Lord as you do so. Take 30 seconds. Jot down. What is something that you said, Lord, I want you to do this? Consider sharing that prayer with someone else, maybe during the luncheon today, so we can be praying for each other in these things. Isaac prays for, for action. It's a type of prayer that we offer to the Lord. Rebecca's prayer is different. Rebecca offers a prayer seeking understanding. God, please explain this. I don't understand what's going on. She's confused, she's troubled by the battle happening inside her womb, so she asks God for an explanation, and what does the Lord do? The Lord answers. He answers Rebecca about these things. We read that answer in verse 23. So Rebecca's prayer, though, it feels desperate, doesn't it? Even in kind of the word, like, what is, what is happening if, 
how is this an answer? How, will I, will these babies, will they survive this? Is it even worth being alive to endure through these things? Like she's troubled in this and this prayer for understanding, it, I think it really reminds me in its desperation of the laments that we find in the Psalms where the psalmists ask questions of the Lord, like why? Why, Lord? Or what's the other really common question? Do you remember the really common question we see in the Psalms in the times of lament? What, is God, what do God's people often ask him? How long? How long? Or when will you act? Maybe it's, I asked you to do something and you haven't. Why? These questions come out of the depths of our souls. They often reveal that a test has been hard and perhaps it has lasted a long time. But our God is a God of infinite wisdom and understanding and he knows the answer to every question and he is at work in every situation. So we come to him with our prayer seeking understanding about what he is doing. He knows we are told to ask. So do you have a, a prayer for understanding that's heavy on your heart? Why? How long? If so, again, I just I want to give you some time. Just write that prayer down, and as you write it, or as you speak it in your heart to the Lord, pray that. Lord, I want to understand this. Take, take that time now. And likewise, just say, consider sharing this prayer with one of your brothers and sisters, maybe after the gathering, even as we sit down at our luncheon so we can be praying for each other about those things. The Lord calls on us and offers to us to pray for him to do and to pray for him to explain. And, and will the Lord answer? Yes, of, of course. Will the answer to your action prayers always be yes? And will it always be quick? No. Our Heavenly Father is not rushed, and he knows what is best, and he does what is best for his glory and for your good. And will the answer to your explanations, explanation prayers always be clear and in poetic form? Is that what we should expect? No. Uh, but he is a God of wisdom who gives wisdom generously to all who ask without reproach, James says. And by his word and his spirit, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. And his word and his spirit are alive in his people so that when we bring our requests before the Lord together, the Lord often answers us through his people. And I hope that we can see that, especially as we come together for our care groups and we're bringing those different needs. Here's, here's this thing that I don't understand. And then someone else is kind of like, well, maybe this is what God's doing. It's kind of like, oh, I didn't even think about that. This sounds like an answer to that request you had last month. Has, has that ever happened to you? It's just like we're just so kind of mired down in something, and then someone else is kind of like, well, this is an answer to the thing that you prayed about last time. Or it's like perhaps this is what God is doing. And sure, it's not the exact same authority of, of having it written in the text of Scripture, but yet we believe in God's word being true and sufficient. We believe in God's spirit being active in his people. Like, why would we not expect for God to work just as he gives comfort, the God of comfort comforts through his people. So the God of wisdom and understanding gives wisdom and understanding through his people. Right? We live in community as a family before the Lord and those type of things. That's one of the importance of sharing those things. That maybe the Lord will answer through his people in those. Do you remember the story of the 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17? Do you remember that story? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's traveling and these 10 lepers on the side of the road, they're not allowed to be near anyone else. They're excluded from society for the sake of the contagion. They see Jesus and they cry out to him to have mercy on them. They all knew their need and they all asked Jesus to act on their behalf. Lord, do this. Have mercy. Heal us. And Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priests, and it's in accordance with the law. And as they went, 
they were cleansed. But then what happened? Remember the story? One came back, right? He was a Samaritan. All of them were cleansed, but only one of them turned back, praising God and thanked Jesus for healing him. So you might remember to pray, Lord, please do. Lord, please explain. I need this deliverance or healing or provision. I'm desperate for this understanding, but, but do we remember to, that he has answered? And, and do we give thanks for that answered prayer? And I think in community, we remember that as well. Sometimes we can remember someone's requests in that moment better than they do moving forward. It's like we want God to act, but do we remember that he has acted? And we want God to explain. And maybe it takes a month or a year or five years or 10 years. But as you look back and then see the fact that God has Right? You can see the path a little bit clearer looking backward than you can looking forward and be like, oh, wow, look what God was doing. Like, I understand this a little bit better now. Would that not be answered to the question, why? How long? It's like when it comes due, we can easily just forget about those things. May the, may the Lord help us to not forget. May the Lord help us to give thanks for these answered prayers, helping us not just to make us a praying people, but a remembering people and a thankful people. The Lord tests his people. The Lord also answers his people in prayer. And that's not just for Isaac and Rebecca. That's for you and me as well. And then the last piece of the text, say finally makes it sound like we're close to the end. We're about halfway. The Lord tests his people. We see that in the setting of these things. The Lord answers his people. We see that with Isaac. We see that with Rebecca. Uh, also, the final aspect of this is that the Lord chooses his people. That's what we see outlined in this text. In the explanation that he gives to Rebecca, God pronounces his plan for her twins. I have to make an interpretive decision here, and I think it's an important interpretive decision, is God just being like, hey, by the way, this is how this is going to play out just letting you know? Or is God saying, this is what I am doing? As we think about prophecy, we really do need to ask those type of questions and answer that question. Does God just kind of like see and be like, oh no, I can just see it further down the road than you can? Or is God saying, here's the road that I built? Do you see how those are very different ways of looking at how God reveals himself in his word? I would say, and I think that it is clear throughout all of the texts of Scripture, that it's not just God being like, I can just, from my vantage point, I can just sort of see how this will play out. That's not God. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. Instead, he's like, this is my plan. This is what I am doing. And for my glory, I will reveal that to you ahead of time. These two sons inside of Rebekah will be two separate nations. Two distinct peoples, and they will be divided rather than united or together. Kind of reminds you of Ishmael and Isaac, right? The distinguishing aspect of it. And then I, I think as I try to look ahead a little bit, it's just like, oh, is it always necessary for this type of division to happen among siblings? But then in the next generation, with every cause of division, God says, no, 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 these are all my people. So like, okay, no Ishmael, yes, Isaac. What did that have to do with? We spent time talking about that. Then with Isaac, it's not because they're two separate mothers now. It's one father, the father of promise, one mother brought by promise, two sons conceived. It's like this could have been, they, they could have all been Isaacites instead of Jacobites or Israelites. But that was not God's plan. That God made this division between these two, choosing one, and not choosing the other. But among these, as they will be two nations and two distinct peoples, divided rather than together, one will be clearly stronger than the other as a man and as a nation. But the future of these two will not be determined by their birth order. It's almost like the whatever we count as the normal, whatever we have as the expectation, it's just like God's just kind of like, yeah, whatever your expectation is, I'm going to act contrary to that. Not always, but a lot. 
just keeps flipping things on its head. It's like, no, it's not going to work the way that you expect. I'm not going to, I'm going to act, but it's not going to look like the way that you want to look. You expect the unexpected when it comes to God's plan rather than like, oh, it's all going to work according to our plan and our expectations. It's not, he's not bound by that. He just flips it on its head. And then it's like when you expect the unexpected, then maybe he does what you would have expected, right? That too is that test of keeping us looking up toward him. Instead of the normal expected blessing and leadership of the older brother into this family, it will actually be the younger brother who rules. The older shall serve the younger. God's choice for the next generation to receive his promise and his blessing would be Jacob, the younger brother, not Esau, the older brother. But why is this? Have you ever wondered what are the criteria that the Lord uses in choosing his people? Well, we can certainly rule out some reasons. That's where I want to start. First, God does not choose on the basis of physical reasons. If it was here on the basis of physical reasons, who would God have chosen? Esau. He's older. That's the natural way of things. And he's stronger, better leadership character, it would seem. So Esau is just the better choice, physically speaking. But God does not choose on the basis of physical reasons. The oldest, the strongest, the handsomest, or most beautiful. And we see that here because it was normal, traditional practice. This culture and most cultures that the older brother would inherit the most from his father and become the next leader of the family. But God does not choose Esau, the older. He chooses Jacob, the younger. And this is in no way the only example of this. Consider, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 6 and 7, when God's speaking to the descendants of Jacob, 450, 440 some odd years into the future, we read this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. And we read this again in 1 Samuel 16. The people got the king that they wanted. That was disastrous. God chooses a different king, sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house. Jesse has a bunch of sons. The oldest is named Eliab. And Samuel just assumes God's choice will be Eliab. It makes sense. He's the oldest. He's strong. Leadership among his brothers, a good king. And this is what God says. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the Lord doesn't choose his people for physical reasons. It's also seen in the unlikely disciples that Jesus chose to follow him. And it's seen in us as well. So we can consider texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Corinth is just obsessed, obsessed with leaders, obsessed with money and with wisdom and with nobility. They're obsessed with reputation and riding the coattails of successful people. They're very American. And how does Paul encourage the Corinthians? Well, you guys are smart too. You've got some good things going for you. That's not what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 26, he says, Well, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We all have different things about us that we want to uh, have commend us to each other and to the Lord. And just none of those things that we want to have commend us to him actually commend us to him. What you need to come to Christ is not any physical superiority to boast on. It's, it's your need. 
you know that you're blind, you know that you're sinful, you know that you're needy, right? That's the ones who are drawn to Christ. Because that's who we all are. And it's stripping away the delusions of that which we think that we can boast on. There's nothing about you in your life or about me that commends us to the Lord, naturally speaking. And if you think about Paul, all of the things that he had going for him in Philippians chapter three, he said actually were causes to hold him back from the Lord. Laying down those things. It's kind of like, do you know about my success? Do you know about my skills? Do you, do you know who my family is? It's not a very American thing, right? But do you know who my family is? Do you know what our heritage is? Kind of like, I deserve to be here. It's like, that's not the basis on which the Lord chooses his people. It's not the basis on which the Lord chose Jacob. It's not the reason for which the Lord chose you. The Lord does not choose his people for physical reasons. But if God does not choose his people for physical reasons, perhaps he chooses for spiritual or moral reasons. Perhaps God's choice is based off of characteristics like generosity, right? Just giving to those who are in need and and honesty in their dealings with other people. And maybe patience on waiting for the Lord to act, faith in his promises and a love that does not show favoritism. Is that why God chooses his people? chose those characteristics because all of them are contrary to who Jacob is. He was not generous when his brother thought he was starving to death. He was not honest in his dealings with his father. He was not patient for the Lord's blessing to come to him. He did not demonstrate faith at any step until much, much later in his life. And his love always had favoritism. It's like, oh yeah, well, that's the ugly wife. I really love her. It's kind of like, oh yeah, 12 sons, sure, but have you met Joseph? Right? Spiritually speaking, is Jacob a good choice? Esau's not a good choice either. We'll talk about that probably more next week. But Jacob is not chosen because he's just this upstanding follower of God. The dude is a supplanter and scoundrel. One book that I have calls him God's rascal. So spiritual, moral type reasons, character reasons, Do not explain God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Even the faith that we eventually see in Jacob's life, which we do see, that it takes decades to start to reveal itself. And as it reveals itself, it clearly follows God's choice of Jacob, which happened before he was born. And it follows, Jacob's faith follows God's revealing himself to Jacob. So you can't say, it's just like, oh, yeah. It's like, well, Jacob's faith, therefore God's choice. It just doesn't fit in the narrative. And this is a very point, a very, excuse me, important point for us to understand. I believe God is very clear about this throughout Scripture. When we think about God's choice and our character, just as a summary of whatever spiritually good valuable, God-pleasing things there are. We'll just lump that into character or into godliness or whatever you want to call it. When you consider God's choice and our character, there is a clear cause and a clear effect. They don't happen simultaneously. They happen, one produces or results in the other. And you have to ask yourself, which comes first? Where is the priority given? So which do you think comes first? Or a better question, much better question, what does God's word say? What does God's word say comes first? God's choice or our character? Whatever good might be revealed in us. So we see God doesn't choose his people for physical reasons, doesn't choose for spiritual reasons either. And to see this, we're going to jump forward to Romans chapter 9. Would you turn there, please? We've done our best consistently to look at whatever New Testament texts uh, use our passages in Genesis, because if we want to be good students of Scripture, we can't just be like, well, what do we think it means? It's like, what does God's Word say it means? How How do the authors of Scripture look at Scripture? So we've done that with Paul in Galatians, and we've done it with Paul in Romans, we've done it with James, 
All right, we've done it with the author of Hebrews. We always want to be like not pretending like we don't have the New Testament to look back on those things. And so we want to know, well, what is God doing here? We want understanding. And so we need understanding from God's word about God's word. And Romans 9 provides that for us in relationship to this story. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. And lest you think this is outside of the context, I just don't have or won't take the time to start in Romans 1 and read all the way through. But this is in keeping with the context. Read as many verses as you want before or after. It doesn't change the simplicity of this passage. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel, that's another name for Jacob, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That wasn't the first generation that happened in. Verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So who was reckoned as a child of Abraham? Isaac. Who wasn't? Ishmael and all of those sons of Keturah. And it quotes that text, but not all of Abraham's offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so you see, not all is a difference between children of the flesh and children of the promise. And the first example of that was Ishmael and Isaac. And we talked about that. Ishmael was a, a child of the flesh and Isaac was a child of promise. For this is what the promise said, promise made to Abraham. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That was the promise of God. Not only so, it wasn't just one generation in which we learn of that. It repeats in the second generation. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election or of choosing his people might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told in Genesis, the passage that we just read, the older will serve the younger. And then in verse 13, Paul quotes a passage from the prophet um, it's, uh, Micah or Malachi. Malachi? I think it's Malachi chapter 1, where you then are fast-forwarded from just Jacob and Esau's individuals and those two different nations, the nation of Israel or Judah, the nation of Edom, that although they were in close proximity, uh, had acted against God's promised people and were not blessed. They were cursed. And so God says, I love you, Jacob. And they're like, how have you loved us? And he's like, I've always loved you because Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I have never been for the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. I've always been for the Jacobites, the Israelites. So that's what Paul is quoting here. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Absolutely not. May the thought never be conceived or the King James, God forbid, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, to uh, modernize that a little bit, I'll have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. I'll have compassion on whoever I want to have compassion on. And if it's mercy, it's not I'll have mercy on those who deserve mercy. You can't deserve mercy. If it's deserved, it isn't mercy anymore. So I'll look on all of those undeserving and I will pick recipients of my mercy, whoever I want. And no one deserves the compassion of the Lord. I will have compassion on whoever I want to have compassion on. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. He does whatever pleases him. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he looks forward to another passage. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you or against you, 
in the context of that, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whoever, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Brothers and sisters, you do recognize, right, that everything good in you is the result of God's work in you? Is there really any Christian who knows of their sin and knows of their Savior who would be like, now that, that was me. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't, the Spirit who dwells in us would not just be like, yep, no, no, that man, that was you. Good job. You did it. I owe you one. Right? Like, in heaven, it would be like, you're welcome, Lord. Is that is that anywhere in your heart? It's like we know that about us, but somehow we expect it's going to be different about someone else. Like, I don't deserve that, but, but I, I didn't know enough. I was blind until the Lord gave me sight, but that person, maybe I can help them see, and then they will come. Like, it just doesn't, sometimes we can be really inconsistent about those type of things. What do you have that you haven't received? Like I already mentioned. It's kind of like, oh, are we blind too? If you would admit your blindness, then you could then, I could help you see. But because you don't think you're blind, you're even worse off than you were. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees who just refused to do those things. You do not deserve, we do not deserve, we could not earn or pay back God's blessing or favor or the salvation provided in his son. And the, the, the expression that's so popular and it's old, it's just always been wrong about the corridors of time that God just has a better vantage point than we do to see how things will play out and then determines his plan according to that, determines his choice because he sees, ah, yeah, Nash, Nash will believe, so Nash is mine. Do you hear that? Because Nash believed, Nash is mine. No, Nash is mine, therefore Nash believes. That's the cause and effect that we were talking about. There is no aspect in which God responds to that which you do first. God always pursues first. If it was left up to us, we're damned in the garden and left alone. But he didn't do that. He came after them. And he made promises, and he made sure those promises happened. The fruit of godliness in the lives of God's people follows the cause of God's choice and calling and work. You, we have to have that cause and effect right, because God will have the glory for the work that he has done. And everything in us that pleases him is the result of his work in us. And Jacob, it's just staring us in the face. Jacob deserved nothing from God, from physical or spiritual reasons. But the good that flowed out and the promise that flowed through Jacob was the result of God's call and choice. The Lord chooses his people. He doesn't respond to what we do. He causes that to display his power and his glory in us. And therefore, we have nothing to boast about. And isn't that just the combined testimony, the universal, unanimous testimony of Scripture that we have nothing to boast about before God? Hey, do you hear how, Lord, do you see how well I responded to that, that sermon? Did you, do you see how good of a job I did? Do you see how good I've been on my, my Bible reading? You're, you know, man, I, I responded really well when I heard that gospel presentation. God did not choose Jacob over Esau for physical or moral spiritual reasons. He hasn't chosen us because of our brilliance, wealth, or popularity, or because of our faith, generosity, or holiness. One author said, if God were to choose someone who deserved to be chosen, he would choose, what do you think? Nobody. You know, what, what have we deserved? What have we earned? Another author, the whole human race deserves the same destruction and is bound under the same sentence of condemnation. Some are delivered by gracious mercy. Others are justly left in their own destruction. Those whom God has chosen are not 
preferred to others because God foresaw they would be holy. We were foreseen that they might be holy. I tripped over that, sorry. God, it's not because God saw, oh, they would be holy, so I'll work in them. No, it's I'm going to work in them that they might be holy. So why does God choose some and not others, like Jacob and not Esau? Not for physical reasons, not for spiritual reasons, but because of his grace, freely, undeservedly, un repayably as given as a gift because of his free choice? We're always obsessed with free choices that we make. Our choices are bound by sin. God's choices are free and uninfluenced except by his character. And his character is one of grace and his choice is love. I love them. And if you read the different passages, it's like I love them because I loved them. I was gracious to them because I wanted to be gracious to them. That's what we see throughout these texts. His grace, the freedom of his choice to love some undeserving, uh, undeserving sinners as his children and not others. Just like he set his love on undeserving Jacob and withheld his love from undeserving Esau. God has the right to do this. And he has done it. God has chosen his people, those who would be in Christ, and he's done it before the foundation of the world. It was long ago determined, even before Genesis chapter 1. And his choice precedes his work in us. After all, what good is possible in us or by us apart from him? Without him, you can do nothing. Not some things not the starting of reaching out, nothing. How should we respond to God's gracious choice of undeserving sinners like us? I think first of all is just the, an attitude of submission to this truth as revealed in Scripture. Don't be like Thomas Jefferson, rip Romans 9 out of your Bible. We must, we must not claim that God could not do or would not do something that his word says he has done. Like that's really square one, and we use that language, and it's used far too often. We cannot say, oh, God wouldn't do that, or God couldn't do that. Right? Again, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, whatever he wants and especially, it's like, oh, God wouldn't send someone to hell. We hear that. We're like, yeah, he would. He has, and he will. And he's not worried about an approval rating uh, with his people or with his enemies. And as you wrestle with this truth, pray for understanding. Why do you do this, Lord? Like, what are you revealing about yourself? Pray for understanding that God, about what God has revealed in his word in these difficult passages. And secondly, we don't just respond with submissions. It's always a good place to start, humbly submitting ourselves to the God who made us and has revealed himself. We also, uh, if we are gods, we should respond with gratitude. I mean, you remember what you deserve, right? What you have earned God's anger and judgment, his rejection and condemnation. But what have you received? Grace, mercy, patience, forgiveness, and adoption into his family, a place prepared for you with him in his eternal home and at his forever table. That's what the Lord has given you, which you don't deserve. Oh, that the Lord would deliver us from thankless familiarity with God's grace and mercy. You feel that, right? It's like even some of you love these truths more, longer than, than I have and have held to them deeply, so much so that it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe in, in your heart, it's like, oh, yeah, Romans 9, got it. And check out, I wonder what, I wonder what food's available. The fellowship lunch, I wonder when he'll wrap up. God, we astounded 
like a Jacob, that despite who we are, contrary to what we deserve, that God has set his love on us. Any gratitude for these things. May we never get used to our salvation. May, we, may the Lord forgive us for where we've gotten used to our salvation. And third, we should respond with love. We love for him who first loved us and while we were still sinners, sent Jesus, his son, to die for our sins. By his spirit, God has removed our, hold, our cold hearts of stone, given us warm hearts of flesh, and those new hearts are meant to be pointed back to him in love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And this is not just our first and greatest commandment. It is also our highest calling and greatest privilege to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. And any obedience to this command is, like I said, it is the work of his spirit transforming us. And finally, we submission and gratitude and love, and we also respond with evangelism. God has chosen a people. If he has chosen a people, he will save those people. They don't deserve it any more or any less than we do, and he has saved us. God will save his people. So we respond with the sharing of the good news confidently, sharing that there is life, eternal life and forgiveness through the work of Jesus because we know that God has a worldwide people. We know that he has a bride that he has chosen for himself and that he will call to himself. Don't be afraid, Paul, to go in this city. I have people there. I know them. I've known them forever and I will call them to myself. So you go and you share the gospel with them. Look to the fields. They are white for harvest. They're not just filled with weeds. God has the wheat there. It's a confidence in the fact that the Lord chooses and has chosen his people and is calling them to himself through the preaching of the gospel. And like we talked about in training hour, we don't need to be confident in our ability to share the message because it is the gospel, not the evangelists, that are the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You know, the Lord, our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, just as he was, he chose to have Jacob as his son, he has chosen us to be his sons and daughters. He tests his people, he answers his people, and he chooses his people. And why does he do that? Because he is good He is gracious, he is merciful, and abounding in steadfast love. And so let's just consider, like Paul and others consider, to just say, ah, the Lord who tests and answers and chooses and saves, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for your grace to us, Father, in Christ our Savior. We do not deserve anything from you other than condemnation, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So thank you for that freedom from condemnation. Uh, Please do fill our hearts with a humble submission to you and to your truth and a gratitude for your work in us that is new, as, as new every day as your mercies are new to us every day. Fill us with a love for you as our Father. That's why you've called us not just so that we wouldn't be your enemies, so that we would be your your sons and your daughters. You have chosen us to be your, your dearly loved children through Jesus Christ. May we love you as you have loved us. Uh, may we be eager to share the gospel with, with others as well, that you are um, to be able to participate, um, be able to watch you bring in your people. And you'll be glorified in these things. Amen.